Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me again to the beginning. That is the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We left off on chapter 3. We now turn to chapter 4. The first three chapters of Genesis provide uh, the basis for understanding what will unfold in the rest of Scripture. We leave off with the promise of the seed to come to crush the head of the serpent to reverse what was done with the first Adam by sending a second Adam. And the Bible basically unfolds along the line of the seed through the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3 on. But on a more universal level, we have before us answers provided for the way things are the way they are in the world. Uh, The condition of humankind is there expressed for us very clearly and tragically in the opening chapters of Genesis. It does not take long for us to see the effects of living under sin. We come to chapter 4, and we have a bit of a case study of this in the person of Cain, but Cain and Abel, their whole experience, and that which unfolds after is life under sin. And a case study we find in particular with the episode between Cain and Abel. So here now as I read God's Word, this is Genesis 4, 1 through 14. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we come now to life under sin in Genesis. Please help us to understand this event with Cain and Abel. Lord, there are warnings for us here. There are examples for us here. But your grace is apparent even here. Please sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the account before us of Cain and Abel, one that you probably heard many times. 
These are the first two children of Adam and Eve. These are by no means the only children of Adam and Eve. Uh, Moses only gives us the account of three of their children. Uh, But we can be sure they lived 930 years. So they had multiple, multiple children. Long life for the generations of mankind in the early days, before the time of Noah. Uh, This was the norm. Adam and Eve created perfect. Yet sin would cause their eventual physical death. Still, it's completely understandable. Uh, The purity of their genetics from the get-go. The condition of the ancient earth being favorable for long lives. You could see why this would be something that could happen in those times. And we know that Adam, when when they had Seth, was 130 years old. Now, Adam's age is a little bit deceiving because he was created as a man, not as a baby. So we can imagine... Adam and Eve have Cain and then Abel, and then they continue to have children, and then Seth is mentioned because he's the one that the seed of the woman would come from. But there are many other children Adam and Eve would have had over this time period. In fact, it's interesting to note that Jewish tradition states that Adam had 33 sons and 23 daughters. Many thousands of people could have existed before Cain actually killed Abel. But the focus is really here just on Cain and Abel in the text before us. The promise of the seed to crush Satan, it becomes the underlying theme of the text going forward from Genesis 3. Even here in chapter 4, we see it. And we see immediately what a daunting task it will be to have the Messiah come from uh, this situation that was, uh, was starting to snowball on the earth, that sin that had taken over so early. Cain and Abel, they inherit their, sin, their parents' sinful nature. And it multiplies and it manifests very rapidly as we see. And we are reminded afresh in chapter 4 already that sin causes an irrational disregard for God and his rule. And then from there, from that posture of pride, it escalates into more sin. Cain and Abel, a study of life under sin. And our specific focus will be the same as the text the main figure being Cain, but Abel does figure importantly. You'll notice that verses 1 through 14 unfold like the drama that it was, uh, this prose narrative that Moses continues with. Few words, but it describes a lot. Basically, we have five scenes unfold. First, we have the forming of Cain's heart, the shaping influence of his life that develops his character. Then we see the demonstration of his character, the demonstration of what comes from within, what he holds dear, the demonstration of his heart. How do we know what kind of person Cain is? We see it in how he demonstrates it outwardly. Then we have a warning from God, a gracious warning from God to Cain personally, an intervention from God to warn and help him to help him avoid disaster. Then in the fourth scene, we have a response from Cain to God's gracious intervention. And finally, there are consequences. What finally happens to Cain? Now, we know the tragic story of Cain and Abel, but as tragic as it is, there is also a very gracious clarity about the way we escape from where sin eventually leads. Let's start at the beginning, verse 1, and we see the formation of Cain's character, the forming of his heart, if you will. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying... I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Notice this this careful celebration of the birth of Cain. 
And again, she bore his brother Abel. Cain and Abel both born. I would submit to you that much can be told from the subtleties of the passage before us. And I want you to look at it carefully with me. Don't miss this packed verse and a half. We have here more than a mother celebrating the birth of her first child, although it is that. What we actually have here is a condemned, guilt-ridden, ashamed set of parents, typified now in Eve, looking for the Lord to give the seed to come that he promised to end this misery that they had plunged everyone into, themselves included, feeling it. After the unbearable weight of their guilt and sin had come upon them, Adam and Eve received a promise from God that he would send a seed from the woman who would undo this, who would crush Satan, a second Adam, as it were. So when Eve bears Cain, you can understand her excitement. No doubt she thinks this is the fulfillment of the promise. Cain is the one. It says in the ESV that we just read, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It says in another version, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The Lord has delivered his promise. She sees Cain, no doubt, as the fulfillment. So we can rightly expect that Cain will have an expectation upon him from day one. A mother and a father, desperate for a savior. A savior who was promised as the seed that would come from the woman, and now they have the son, Cain. You have to think that this understanding of Cain impacted the way they treated Cain. He was the chosen one. He was special. His heart was formed in an environment of favor and expectation. And we could, to some degree, understand this. Imagine if you were told from the time you were little that you are the one. The agony of sin that everyone felt because of Adam and Eve, Cain, you are the one that God says will get us all out of this. God will use you to change everything. So Cain grows up under this kind of expectation, no doubt. What Cain does, he's responsible for, but we can certainly recognize the shaping influence in his life. Now, if you wonder about this take, notice the difference in Abel's birth announcement. See the passage together again. Adam knew his, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel's an afterthought. Complete lack of excitement, it appears in the passage. A great declaration and fanfare in response to the birth of Cain, none of the same, the birth of Abel. One son grows up as a chosen one. The other son is just a regular guy, maybe even an afterthought. One son is celebrated and touted. The other son is at very least in his brother's shadow. We have a bit of the forming of Cain's view of himself in these opening verses. We can sense what shaped Cain's character from these brief statements in the opening passage. We probably even have a bit of the forming of Abel's view of himself as well. Now, I would absolutely be careful about drawing too many parenting uh, tips from Cain and Abel. But we can at least base level recognize the importance of those shaping influences early in how we have experienced them or how we have our children go through them. The effects of favoritism, the effects of, of pumping one up too high or bringing one down too low. But what comes from this? What comes from this description we have before us? How do we see the impact of this expectation on Cain? Brings us to the second scene of this unfolding drama, the second part of verse 2 all the way to, to verse 5, where we now have a demonstration of who these men are. 
a demonstration of what's inward works its way outward by what they do. What outward display does Cain give that helps us to see what's happening with him? Likewise, we might wonder the same about Abel. This is important as well. Look at the second part of verse 2. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. They have jobs, they have vocations, and both are important God-ordained tasks. Abel kept livestock. He spent his time raising and caring for sheep. This was a difficult job, more than a full-time job, part of God's calling to subdue the earth. Cain, he worked the ground, and this meant he cultivated the earth. He grew produce. This, too, was a difficult job, an important job, more than a full-time job. Both are honorable professions, and part of their calling is God's vice regents. It's difficult now because of sin, but they're fulfilling what God had called them to do. Now, what we see by way of their offerings to God demonstrates the hearts of Cain and Abel. Look at verse 3. Again, paying attention to the particulars. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. In the course of time. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Wait. What happened? Why did God accept one offering and not the other? Let's look closely. We have a demonstration of their hearts in these outward actions. First, notice Cain's offering. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, the problem here is not that he didn't give a blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifices were not introduced for many years after, and even then grain offerings were allowable too. The issue is deeper, and it has to do with Cain's heart towards God. Cain did not offer his first fruits to God, and the first fruits are the best of the offering. The first fruits are the most important of an offering, of a sacrifice. The reason is if you give the first fruits that come, You don't know that second fruits will necessarily come. By giving the first fruits, you're saying to the one who provided them, here, to you, you're the one that provides all. So if I give you these, you could certainly raise up more. The first fruits is a statement of faith in the giver. It demonstrates a heart of dependence and reliance. And if I give these first fruits, more will come. I believe if you gave these, you can give others. But Cain waited over the course of time, and then gave some of what he had. It seems like what he had accumulated. In the course of time, it says, Cain brought an offering of fruit from the ground. Time had passed. He gathered some for himself. He had grown some for himself. And then he had some, maybe some surplus. And then he looks at his surplus, and he gives an offering of the fruit. I picked this and this and this. And The New King James says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Now, by comparison, look at Abel's offering in verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Right away you see the difference in the offerings. 
Abel brings the firstborn. It's a show of faith of God. He knows that the animals that he keeps and stewards and benefits from and depends on are from God. He proves that he knows they're from God who supplies his needs. When the first lambs are born, he gives them to God. He doesn't keep them for himself. No portion of them. He offers them to God. This offering by Abel is a profession of faith and dependence in God. It's a right view of God who is the ruler and the supplier. And it leads to faith. It leads to an action of faith that flows from this belief. Whereas on the other hand, a disregard for God's rule and his kingship and his right lordship leads to pride and I'll give you whatever I want to give you. It's a demonstration of their hearts. Why did God reject Cain's offering? Because he did not come in faith. He came in pride. Why did God accept Abel's offering? Because he came in humble faith. How do we know? Cain brought leftovers. Abel brought his first fruits. And we know this is right because in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. It was counted to him as righteous that he relied upon God. And the evidence of his reliance upon God is the offering he gave. And when we have faith in God's provision, we have faith in God's supply for us in life and in salvation. It's counted to us as righteous because we rest in him. Whereas when we rest in ourselves, we're not going to bring an offering that's worthy because our trust is in ourselves. The demonstration of Cain's heart was a faithless offering, and it showed his pride. The demonstration of Abel's heart was an offering given by faith, and it showed his humble dependence on God. And it's a great exhortation for us. Let us give our first fruits to God, beloved. The time that we've been given, that's a gift from God. Let's give our best to him. The talents that we have received, these are gifts from him. These are abilities that he bestows upon us. Let's do our best in all things for him. The resources that he gives us to manage, it's all a gift from him. Let's give the first fruits of that back to him. We are worshipers. That's what we've been created to do. We've seen that as our design from the beginning of Genesis. So let us give God our full worship and sacrifice in every area, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. This is the response of faith. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, talking to people who are in Christ, they rest on Christ. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship faith-based worship. Give it all to God. It's all from him. Take it from us, O Lord. See all of what you do and all of what you have is a way to demonstrate the faith that God's given you by doing it for his glory. As I say to you so often, it's not that you all go and do something totally different this week. It's that what you do will be done for him. That's the difference. You know, it should excite the believer when they read, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Why? Because it was based on reliance upon God. I'm going to give you the first fruits, and if I don't have another meal, it doesn't matter because you gave me this anyways. It's up to you. It's always up to you. Here are my first fruits. That's a great challenge for a new year 
Cain's response at this moment could have been to wake up. Wake up to his need to depend on God, to be humbled, to have his irrational view of God and his rulership fixed. But instead, it says something horrible in the passage. Look at verse 5. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That's a description of a person who's resolved himself to be fixed mad against God. His countenance fell. He did not just lose his temper momentarily and say something he regretted. He was fixed in his aggravation toward God. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now when we probe anger a little bit more, we go to the New Testament, we listen to what Jesus says to describe this feeling we have, this sense we have. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, well, that's heavy. Murder, of course, that's the worst of it. But I say, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You get the same, it's the same. Being angry is like murdering somebody. And at that moment, Cain's saying, I want to kill you, God. That's the demeanor Cain has in response. Now, we come to the third act in this intensifying drama. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. This is the warning God. It's a gracious warning, an intervention of God to speak to Cain at this, this vital, essential, critical moment. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Now, what does this remind you of? Uh, when did we last observe God asking questions of human beings? It wasn't that long ago. In Genesis 3, speaking to Adam, the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? These questions that God asks Adam. Of course, he asks to the woman, what is this that you have done? Now, to the passage before us, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? That cadence or that rhythm, that asking of questions from God, surely Cain had heard the story from his parents. God gives Cain gracious instruction. Verse 7, gracious instruction. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you keep going like you're going, sin, it's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It wants to kill you, but you must rule over it. First of all, what is meant by if you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, what was accepted? Abel's offering. What Abel did, he gave in faith. He trusted in God. He recognized who God was, the king and ruler. He recognized he could not supply for himself in his life for his salvation. And so he demonstrates this by his giving of this offering that just shows that he trusts. That's how you do well. Trust in God for his salvation. Trust in God for his supply. Humble yourself before him. Recognize him for who he is. When you don't recognize him for who he is, it always escalates into further sin. When you do recognize who he is, it humbles us and it promotes faith in us. Do well by believing in me and my word. That's what he's saying. Because Cain, there's a dark road that you are on in your anger and your pride is leading you down that road. 
Again, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you trust in me, you'll be accepted. What you do will evidence that you trust in me. But if you do not do well, if you keep trusting in yourself, if you keep disregarding me and my rule, in my provision of salvation, and your need for it, if you keep ignoring that, sin, it's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You may think it's there to help you. You may think it's enjoyable, but it's there to pounce on you and to kill you. You must rule over it. Cain, if you don't get humble, you will be consumed by sin. Anger with God or being mad at God is a profession of faith in yourself. My situation isn't the way it should be, God. You have messed this up. Why have you not done this for me or provided this for me? Or why have things happened this way? I'm mad at you, God. Being mad at God in this way, the way I'm describing, it reveals a rejection of God as the just sovereign judge. It reveals an irrational disregard for God and his rule, which always escalates to sin. Verse 6, once again, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, if you trust in me, if you rely upon me, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, if you continue to go in your pride, sin, it's crouching at the door, it's desires for you, you must rule over it. Beloved, it is understandable. It's understandable in this life of sin and misery. Sins that we've committed, sins committed to us, the, the world of full of sin and trouble and suffering. It's reasonable to be angry with that situation or to be frustrated with that situation of sin. It makes sense that a person or people would be discouraged or downcast because of the misery brought on in this life because of sin. And none of us should judge one another for someone who's down because of what's happened in their life and the challenges that they're weighed up under. That's not the point. That, that's, the psalmist does this in crying out to the Lord. Oh Lord, how long? How long will the, right, will the wicked be able to prosper? How long? That's not what's happening here. That's not what's occurring. Here, he's mad at God for not giving what he wants when he wants it. The psalmist says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I'll never turn away a broken and contrite heart. One who comes in humility, God, I know who you are. I know who I am. I do not match this. I trust in you for the answer to that. And he gives us the answer in Christ. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. We remember this feature in the life of the Apostle Paul. When we think of the hardships and the difficulties that we deal with, it helps us from being angry with God to switching to recognizing what God might have this for in our life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited to keep me from trusting in myself, to keep me to thinking, from thinking that I had the answers, that I could provide. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. The Apostle Paul prayed that God would take this situation from him, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, sicknesses, difficult situations, things I can't understand, and you fill in the blanks. For when I am weak, and I'm weak, Lord, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, because God and the power of Christ is manifested. Back to verse 7 of our passage. If you do well, will you not be accepted? How might we do well? Trust in God, rest in him, have faith in him.
Now, as far as the narrative goes, here's a chance again for Cain to repent, to turn from himself and turn unto God. It seems, at least on the surface level, that Cain has been given helpful, eye-opening, potentially life and eternity-changing counsel from God himself. We come to the penultimate scene in this climaxing drama, verse 8. It's a very simple but heavy and dark verse as the response of Cain to the gracious intervention of God is manifested. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, his brother Abel, and killed him. This is life under sin, murder. One human being destroying another human being. One person created in the image of God. The second, generations, uh, second generation of human beings on earth murdering another created in the image of God. Sin causes an irrational disregard for God and his rule, which escalates to more sin. The eminent scholar Derek Kidner comments on this episode. He says, through Cain, sin is shown with its own growth cycle. Many details emphasize the depth of Cain's crime and therefore of the fall. The context is worship, the victim a brother. And while Eve had been talked into her sin, Cain will not have even God to talk him out of it. Murder comes so quickly in the history of mankind and it lingers so awfully still. The ease with which people take the lives of others or turn their eyes to people having their lives taken. It's a reminder of how far from God we have fallen. Humans created in the image of God, destroying others who are also created in the image of God. It's the ultimate show of how sin escalates. Um, James writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire. then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's where sin finally leads, to death. So the final act is also reminiscent of passages that we've seen before. Look now at verse 9 down to verse 14. We see the consequences for Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Does this not remind you of Genesis chapter 3 again, but worse? It's like one step worse now. It's getting worse. It's multiplying. It's growing. Back in Genesis 3 verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And these two episodes are similar, but Cain's response is an escalation of prideful sin, an irrational disregard for who God is in his rule. God asks Adam where he was, and Adam sheepishly and ashamedly answers, here I am. I was scared. God asked Cain where Abel was, and Cain says, who cares, and it doesn't matter to me, and furthermore, why are you asking me? Sin causes an irrational disregard for God and his rule, and it escalates to more sin. We see it here. The curse pronounced on Cain is even more extreme than the one that he inherited from his parents. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. 
When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. No longer being able to earn a living from farming, Cain is forced now to wander. He'd have to depend on the mercy of others for sustenance, we would expect. Cain does not respond with a plea for mercy or forgiveness. Oh, Lord, please, not that. Forgive me, Lord. Please, don't put this upon me. What can I do? None of it. Cain says, my punishment is greater than I could bear. Again, more unfairness. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground. You did this. It's all you. You have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer. Fugitive and a vagabond, it says in some versions. A fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. You sense the anxiety created by his own murderous ways. Uh, Someone who lives by the sword or the rock or whatever it is he used to kill Abel also now lives his days wondering when it will befall him. Paranoia and anxiety all the rest of his remaining days. And his remaining days were many. He lived over 700 years. The way of escape, though, however, even though Cain was not seeing this, I trust you were as we were going through this episode. You see, there's always an opportunity for escape. You recognize our God is so gracious that this is a call to me, to you, to not go the way of Cain, especially if we profess that we rest in him. This is a great warning for us again. It's a great call to us again to recognize the great grace of God that he's provided for us, what he has provided. If you've understood this passage by God's grace, it's already done the work of humbling you and working faith in you towards God. Christ is your way of escape. The seed that will come from the woman, which comes from Seth, the next person to be born that's mentioned anyways. The way of escape from God's just wrath is to flee unto him for salvation, and he gives you Christ for your refuge. The way of escape is not to keep doing what you've always been doing or to stay mad at God. It's to cry out to God, recognize who he is, and ask him to save you. Sin causes an irrational disregard for God. If you have a low view of God right now, that's irrational. It makes no sense that you, the created one, would, have, would look down upon the creator. That's not sensible. Wake up from this by God's grace. And when we get the right view of this, now we recognize, uh-oh, in front of God, who are we in front of God? We're in trouble before God. God saved me. And he saves you. He gives you Christ. Sin causes an irrational disregard for God and his rule, and it escalates to sin and more sin. Faith causes a renewed recognition of God and his rightful rule, which leads us to trust in his provision of a Savior and his provisions for the whole of our life. I want to close with a statement from A.W. Pink, who really does a good job finally characterizing this episode that we have studied. Pink writes, Cain and Abel stand as the representatives of two great classes of people, They typify, typify respectively, the lost and the saved, the self-righteous and the broken-spirited, the formal professor and the genuine believer, those who rely on their own works and those who rest upon the finished work of Christ, those who insist upon salvation by human merits and those who are willing to be saved by divine grace, those who are rejected and cursed by God and those who are accepted and blessed. Both Cain and Abel were children of fallen parents, and both of them were born outside of Eden. 
Both were therefore by nature children of wrath, and as such judicially alienated from God. Both had been shaped in iniquity and conceived in sin, and hence both stood in need of a Savior. But Cain denied his ruined and fallen condition and refused to accept the remedy that God provided. While Abel, he acknowledged his sinnership, believed the divine testimony, put his faith in God for salvation, and was accounted righteous before God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, for those who know you and believe in Christ, please make their belief stronger and deeper still. For those who do not yet believe, please break their pride so that they would go no further down the road that Cain and so many travel. Convince them of their need for Christ and turn them to him for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together respond to the word preached.